We are in chapter 9, verse 32, and this is the next section, section C. It is the ministry of Peter, and it's chapters 9, 32 through 11, 18. We've just seen with Philip that his ministry to the eunuch and some other things. With Philip, he's basically unlocked the doors to the Gentiles and kind of cracked it open. With Peter going to Cornelius in this section, he's going to kick the door wide open and allow the floodgates of a new ministry, a new direction to begin. So in this section, Luke highlights the similarities between Jesus' ministry and Peter's ministry, showing that the same divine spirit that was at work through Jesus was at work in Peter. Yet the focus is on the conversion of the Roman centurion, Cornelius, and his family. Now we've already seen how Peter's ministry is like Jesus. We've already seen that. But we saw that with the Jews, the the Hebraic Jews of Jerusalem, and that seems natural. Now it's important to also show that Peter's ministry is just like Jesus because now we're going to the Gentiles. And this gives credibility to branching out to the Gentiles in this way. Just as Peter first introduced the Jews to the gospel of Jesus and the significance of the first time indwelling of the Holy Spirit, so now he introduces the first group of the Gentiles to the gospel of Jesus, which is validated by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It is here that the full ramification of the gospel of Jesus can be seen. Yahweh has come to give eternal life to all peoples, uniting them to himself and each other in the same spirit that indwells them all. So chapter 9, verse 32. Now as Peter was traveling around from place to place, he also came down to the saints who lived in Lydia. He found there a man named Aeneas, who had been confined to a mattress for eight years because he was paralyzed. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus the Christ heals you. Get up and make your own bed. And immediately he got up. All those who lived in Lydia and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. So Lydia, which is modern-day Lode, was on the Mediterranean coast about 10 miles from the sea. It was about 25 miles northwest of Jerusalem and stood at the junction of the roads of Joppa, on which was a seaport for ships, and Jerusalem, the highway to Egypt and Syria. We're now branching out beyond Jerusalem. He's healing a man, and this is very, very, very similar to the miracles that Jesus did of healing people who could not walk and healing him. And notice this very quickly. Okay, there, it's just like the man comes to him, Peter speaks in the name of Jesus, and he is healed. And once again, Jesus spoke and just said, be healed. Peter has to speak with the authority and the name and the character of Christ because he is not God himself. Yet, at the same time as Jesus, it's very quick and very instantaneous. No rituals, no incantations, no... Um, holy relics of any kind. It's just done simply and quickly through the power of Christ. He will then move to Joppa in verse 36, which is modern-day Yaf, a suburb of Tel Aviv, and it was on the Mediterranean coast about 10 miles west and a little north of Lydia. It was an ancient seaport for Jerusalem, and Tabitha is going to be a Jewish Christian that he will meet there. Now in Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which in translation means Dorcas. She was continually doing good deeds and the acts of charity. At that time, she became sick and died. And when they had washed her body, they placed her in the upstairs room. And because Lydia was near Joppa, 
When the disciples heard that Peter was there, they sent two men to him and urged him, Come to us without delay. So Peter got up and went with them, and when he arrived, they brought him to the upper room. The upper room. All the widows stood beside him, crying and showing him the tunics and other clothing Dorcas used to make while she was with them. But Peter sent them all outside, knelt down, and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, get up. And then she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. He gave her his hand and helped her get up. Then he called the saints and the widows and presented her alive. This became known throughout all of Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. So Peter stayed many days in Joppa with a man named Simon, a tanner. Tabitha is the Aramaic name, and Dorcas is her Greek name. She was highly respected by the people in the community. She was a businesswoman who made and sold fabrics. And so there were many, many, many people who were invested in her life because she was invested in theirs. And they pleaded for Peter to heal her. And once again, she heals her. Now, this is very similar to Peter healing Jairus' daughter from Mark chapter 5, verse 41, and Luke chapter 8, verse 51. Remember, Jairus' daughter was a young girl, and she died, and Jesus went a little bit later to heal her, and Peter does the same thing. And in the Hebrew, or in the Greek, and so all this is pointing to the fact that Peter is able to do what Christ was able to do because they had the same spirit working through them. Witherington says this, Once it is recognized that these two narratives form a pair, then it is in order to note that Luke frequently deals in pairs, in particular in pairs of narratives, one of which focus on, focuses on a man and the other on a woman. H. Flinder long ago rightly concluded that this deliberate literary pattern is Luke's way of suggesting that the good news and all aspects of salvation, including healing, are intended equally for men and women. They are equal in honor and grace. They are endowed with the same gifts and have the same responsibilities. While it is true that Luke does not spend as much time on a woman in Acts as on men, he nonetheless provides us with a series of vignettes meant to show the various roles women assumed in the early church, providing material aid, hosting the house church, teaching and prophesying. What is especially striking about Acts 9, 43 is that it is that more time, attention, and detail is given to the narrative about helping a woman disciple than it is given to the story about Aeneas, suggesting that Luke wants to single this sort of thing out, especially noteworthy about the early church. And then later he goes on and says, My own view was and remains that Luke and Paul, like other early Christians, believe their faith committed them to the reforming of some of the existing patriarchal structures so that women could play more vital and varied roles in the community of faith. The reform was to take place within the community. To this end, Luke presents five cameos of important Christian women and the variety of roles they assume. And the mother of John, Mark, which will be in Acts chapter 12, and Lydia in Acts chapter 16, we see women assuming the role of mother or patronesses, benefactors to the then-fledging Christian communities in Jerusalem, Philippi respectively, meaning that these are two wealthy women who were 
they were very significantly financially contributing to the growth of the church and the support of the church. And without them, the church would have been struggling significantly. Like them in the story of Tabitha, Acts chapter 9, a notable female disciple with an ongoing ministry, we find someone providing material aid to a particular needy group of early Christians, widows of Acts chapter 6. Luke's mention of Philip's daughter is brief, Acts chapter 21, but when compared to Acts 2, 17, is sufficient to show that women played important roles of inspired proclaimers in the early church. Perhaps the most important is Luke's reference to Priscilla as a teacher of notable early Christian evangelists, Apollos in Acts 18. Luke's portrayal of Priscilla is unreservedly positive. And so he is highlighting these women, prominent women, highly involved women in the community, financially as well as teachers, as well as givers of aid, in order to emphasize there is no distinction between men and women as far as their equality, nor as far as how God will use them in the ministry of the church. The last thing that is mentioned in this paragraph is that Peter stayed in Joppa, and he stayed with a man by the name of Simon the Tanner. Now this is important because the very next thing that we're going to go into is Cornelius, the Roman Gentile soldier, who is going to put his faith in God. And God is going to give Peter a vision of clean and unclean animals. He's going to say you can eat it all, suggesting that there's no difference between clean and unclean, which is then going to be a metaphor for the Jews and the Gentiles, because there's no difference between them. And we'll unpack that more as we go. But it's ironic here, Peter has a problem with this because he's like, Lord, the law says we're not allowed to eat things that are unclean. And now you're telling me to. And we're not allowed to mix with the Gentiles, which are unclean, and now you're telling me to. Ironically, he's staying with an unclean man. Simon the Tanner is a tanner of animal skins. He would live in a house with animals and he would kill the animals, and then he would skin them and tan the skins and make them into leather for material. And now there's nothing wrong with having leather and using it and wearing it. That doesn't make you unclean. But the fact that he has all these dead animals in his house makes him unclean. It also makes him perpetually, continuously unclean because he's always in his house with these dead animals, always working with them. So there's never a time that he will ever be clean again. And so tanners are often very much looked down upon by the, the, Jew, the Jews. And in fact, in the Talmud, which was a commentary on the, the Mosaic law and how to interpret and that kind of stuff, they were despised because of their ongoing uncleanliness and because of their bad smell from all the chemicals that they would use in this process. And so there's a little bit of the Luke kind of highlighting the hypocrisy of Peter here on this. This doesn't make him a horrible bad person. This doesn't make him disconnected from God. Obviously, all God has to do is kind of repeat it a second time, and Peter is obedient. And in fact, he's going to defend it later. But in the moment, there is a hypocrisy of he's saying, well, it can't be unclean as he is unclean in the moment, because if he's staying with the tanner, he has become unclean too. And, and this just shows like, one, it shows... It is hard to be consistent as any kind of believer across the board in every area of your life. But the other thing is it shows the burden of the law. The, the law is, 
impossible to live under. It is impossible to fulfill. And you can emphasize these parts of the law and be obedient, but because it's so broad and so complex and it's so overwhelmingly impossible for those who are sinners, there's no way you're going to be consistent across the board. And thus, this is the whole point of the law, to point your need for Jesus. That you can't meet the requirements of the law. Only Christ can. And only Christ's atonement for you allows you to be spared from the judgment of the law. And only Christ living in you through the power of the Holy Spirit gives you the ability to actually become faithful and obedient and conform to the law. But the law as through Christ. And so here we have, here with Peter, who's finally found his need for Christ, preaching Christ, going to people who need Christ, and yet it's still being demonstrated that without Christ, Peter still cannot meet the law. Even with Christ, Peter still needs him all the more.